The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, on Sunday mornings, we have been walking through the book of Acts for over two years, taking a few breaks here and there. It was a wonderful to pause and walk our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, but now we're back in Acts, as you know. And you've been reminded week after week that the title of this series is Church on the Move. And that's a great title. That's how Acts presents the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who promised to build his church, the one who promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's the one who died to purchase his bride from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he's the one in in the beginning of Acts who declared to his church as the resurrected Lord about to ascend. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria unto the ends of the earth. And then as we read on in the book of Acts, we watch the narrative. It's almost, it's just vivid. I say, use the word watch. We watch the narrative of Acts unfold and we marvel at how the gospel is spreading as an amazing movement. The church is on the move because God is on the move accomplishing his unbelievable merciful purpose. What at the beginning was considered a mere heretical sect of Judaism quickly penetrated every level of society in the Roman Empire. And within a few centuries, Christianity became the dominant official religion of the Roman Empire. Some good things about that and some really bad things about that. But just the extent and the growth of this movement called the church. And today, when you look at the world scene, you see that Christianity has penetrated so many people groups more than any other religion, the face of this world. The most obscure places in the world, the Church of Jesus Christ is there worshiping. It is an amazing movement. As we study the history of the church through the ages to the present day, we see how it waxes and wanes and waxes again. We see it going up and down and up and down, both on an individual church basis as well as a global church basis. In fact, when you look at um, the church in North America and Europe, it seems as though the church is waning. Although we don't know what God is doing, but it seems as though it's waning. And as we look to the wider world, we see that there is an amazing growth of the church in Latin America 
Asia, and Africa. And this is often called the Global South because most of it's south of the equator. In fact, in 2018, the new statistics came out that said that the continent with the largest number of professing believers in Jesus Christ is now Africa. It's just surpassed Latin America. The center of Christianity right now has shifted from the north to the south. And we just sit and we're excited that God's church is moving in amazing ways in many parts of this world. But the troubling part, which is true for a lot of the growth of the church in the global south and especially in Africa, is that there is a severe lack of theological education and pastoral training. And this is hurting many people, and especially the poor, because some pretty bizarre things are being embraced in the name of Christ. Hurtful things. Think of the prosperity gospel, which is so powerfully present in Latin America, Asia, and Africa, birthed in the United States of America, broadcast through the Internet. So one of the great needs of the hour is theological training in the global south. Thirteen years ago, Bethlehem helped to birth an organization called Training Leaders International. TLI, one of our famous acronyms, is devoted to addressing the need of pastoral training in the majority of the world. In August 2020, on my 40th anniversary here at Bethlehem, 15 people crowded into this sanctuary to commission me and Julie to work with TLI to focus our attention on Cameroon. Just amazing. Fifteen people just filled this sanctuary at the height of COVID. And, uh, but it was a holy moment. In the video service, Pastor John Piper commissioned Julie and me to serve as Bethlehem Global Partners and to do it with Training Leaders International focused on pastoral training in Cameroon. Well, why Cameroon? About 15 years ago, a student from Cameroon named Diudene Tamfu came to study in Bethlehem Seminary, which at that time was the Bethlehem Institute. He spent three years studying here lived in my basement. We got a lot, lot of time together, dreamed together, prayed together for Cameroon, heard his vision. He later went on to get his Ph.D. from Southern Seminary in Kentucky, and then he helped to pastor Jubilee, one of our church plants. He returned to Cameroon with Dominique, his Haitian-American, French-speaking wife. 
and he sensed God's leading to plant a church in the French part of Cameroon, even though he's from the English part of Cameroon. So he had to go back and learn French and catch up to his wife. And, uh, but they wanted to do it. They felt God wanted them to do it in Cameroon's capital city called Yaoundé. And also he felt compelled that he wanted to start an extension site of our college and seminary in Yaoundé. He wanted to give his life to pastoral training in the context of the local church. On October 4th, 2021, just a little while later, I experienced one of the great joys of my life. This was the official first Sunday of our TCT church plant in Yaoundé. He had been meeting with the church planting team for a year, and now this was their launching Sunday. And I was there, and I had the immense privilege of praying the commissioning prayer over their first elders and pray the dedication prayer over the congregation. And it officially became a local expression of the body of Christ. Since then, the church is growing in health and in numbers and is full of life and vision. Wish you could be there um, and see it. Some of you have been. The seminary, which began a year earlier, is doing very well this Coming May, we will graduate, Lord willing, our first cohort from the seminary with an accredited four-year Master of Divinity degree, which is a rare thing in Cameroon. These men are being trained to pastor churches and to plant churches that will plant churches and to care about the unreached peoples of Cameroon and beyond. So I want to thank you for standing behind the Tamfus and the Stellars in this work, and please continue to pray. This summer, in a week and a half, I will be returning with four of our students from Minneapolis, one of them being baptized this morning, Hernan, and Mike was helping him out of the, the tub and, uh, and then two others, um, Tusong and uh, Matt Racine. And uh, we'll be going together to teach a couple courses there and also to participate in a pastor's conference. And I'm so excited for these four guys to come with me. So the church is on the move in Cameroon and in so many places. So much more could be said. But I want us to now consider the passage before us. It's Acts chapter 22, verses thir- verse 30 through chapter 23, verse 22. So I encourage you to go there with me. We're just going to look at this little, um, oh, this little piece of the neighbor of the of the the book of Acts. And uh, while you are turning or scrolling there to chapter 22, verse 30, let me remind you of the larger context of this passage. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Kenny preached from Acts 20 on Paul's farewell message to the Ephesian elders um, at Miletus. 
which was at the end of his third missionary journey. And in that message, Paul talked about how his passion was to complete the ministry that, the, that God had called him to. Chapter 20, verse 24. Even though he knew that suffering awaits him. The elders then accompany Paul to the ship. They embrace, they kiss, they weep, and Paul begins his journey back to Jerusalem. And it's one of the we passages of the book of Acts. So that means Luke, the author of Acts, was with him. He was an eyewitness of what you are reading in Acts, in this part of Acts. So last Sunday, John Beckman preached on Acts 21, verses 1 to chapter 22, verse 29, about how Paul returned to Jerusalem. He finally gets his way back by ship to Jerusalem. And, uh, and he comes into a context. And remember, he's been gone for a long time. He comes back into a context and there are now thousands of believers, mostly Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And, uh, but these Jewish believers, it says thousands of them, they had been lied to about Paul. They had been told that he wants all Christians to forsake Moses. See that in Acts 21, 20. And then non-believing Jews later on, issued more accusations and said he was bringing the Gentiles into the temple, which he wasn't doing. And so in response to all this passion and this tumult, a mob forms that took steps to kill him, to kill Paul. A Roman tribune a commander of a thousand. That's what tribune means. And what I realized that, you know, we think of Acts of the Apostles. Part of this, this part of Acts could also be called the Acts of the Tribune, the Acts of the Commander. He occurs 17 times in four chapters in this section. And uh, it's really quite stunning to me as I was preparing. And, uh, but this this Roman tribune steps in to stop the riot, assuming Paul was guilty, but thought he should go through some due process. So he stops the riot, and he arrests Paul, and he puts Paul in chains. And then Paul humbly asks the tribune. This is what was last week. Paul humbly asks the tribune if he can address the people. And... Tribune said, okay, and Paul speaks in Hebrew, which kind of quiets the crowd. He speaks in Hebrew, and Paul shares his testimony with the crowd, and then he says that God called him to preach to the Gentiles. As soon as he says that he's going to preach to the Gentiles, the crowd stopped listening and resumed their efforts to kill him. The Roman Tribune rescues Paul. The Roman tribune rescues Paul from the mob, but to appease the mob, he turns Paul over to a centurion, which is a ruler of a hundred. The tribune is really a kiliarchos, that's a ruler of a thousand, but he turns him over to a, 
an underling, a centurion, and he wants to um, quell the crowd. So he puts him in chains and he asks, um, and, uh, and then the Roman tribune turns him over, sorry, to the centurion, who's going to examine him by scourging. So that's what was going to happen. They were going to stretch Paul out, and they were going to scourge him just like they scourged Jesus. Paul was scourged many times, you can read in 2 Corinthians. He was going to scourge him. And, uh, and, and then Paul had enough presence of mind to say, Hey, I'm a Roman citizen. We learned about that last week. I'm a Roman citizen. And the centurion got nervous. He said, I can't scourge a Roman citizen. So he goes back to the tribune and they don't want to break Roman law. And so the, the, the tribune says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, so I'm going to call for the Jewish council, which is kind of puppets of the Roman government that was in charge at that time in Israel. But I'm going to let this um, Jewish council called the Sanhedrin come and, and, in verse 22, 29, find out the reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews. That's how it left last week. So, now, we leave Paul on the brink of being um, scourged and uh, now before the, San, before the Sanhedrin. And uh, verse 30 of chapter 22. So I'm just going to kind of read and comment as I go for a while. So just follow with me. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul, why he, you always when you see these pronouns, trace them back, who are these pronouns referring to? It's Paul. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. Who's he? He is the commander. Refers back to the commander. He unbound him and commanded the chief priest and all the council, the Sanhedrin, to meet. So he summons the Sanhedrin. And he brought Paul down and set Paul before them. Okay, you guys figure it out. Tell me what's happening. And then Paul says, looking intently at the council. Try to put yourself in this. Why don't you just get gripped by the narrative of the book of Acts. It is just the most amazing story. I mean, this, this is just begging to be made into a, some kind of a multi-episode series that would keep you hanging week after week after week. And, uh, and so um, Paul looks intently at the council and he said, Brothers, not that they're Christians, but they're Jewish kindred. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Hmm. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Why did that bother him so much? Why did Ananias want to strike Paul on the mouth after one sentence? And I think it's because he's, Paul is saying, I've lived my, my life before God in all good conscience. 
which they understood. Paul was a noted um, Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, 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 was, um, he was a law keeper. He was in the best graces. He, he was the one that got official letters to go and, and snuff out the church. And so, of course, he was, just, he was more zealous than all his kinsmen, it says in Galatians. And so they could understand why he said, um, uh, I have lived in good conscience until he said, up to this day. In other words, my conscience is still clean, and I'm now an apostle of the Gentiles. And the high priest could not tolerate that blasphemy. Poof! We don't know if he hit him or not, but he at least told them that they, were, they should hit him. Maybe he didn't. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. <laughs> it's not the typical humble response you'd, you'd expect from the apostle. And uh, we know it can't be sin to talk that way because Jesus addressed the Pharisees and the scribes as whitewashed tombs back in Matthew 23, 27, and who are outward, outwardly beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. So it's just a graphic illustration. But it's interesting. It then says, um, I mean, Paul said, Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And then those who said, stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I'm not going to get into that. That's complicated. Um, I did not know that he was the high priest. How could Paul not know he was the high priest? Several reasons that are given. One is that Paul had been out of Israel for a long time, and uh, he now has bad eyesight. That's why he writes which, such large letters, and the glory of God appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and his, you'd pluck your eyes out for me, it says in Galatians. It just seems like Paul had some eye problem. Maybe he just couldn't see very well. That could be. Or it could be that Paul's in and out I mean, he hasn't been to Jerusalem for many years, and the high priest changes. So it could have been that he didn't know, he really didn't know that he was the high priest. So we don't know. I'm not going to solve that one for you. You can, you can think about that yourself. But uh, Paul um, deals with it. And you can't quite tell if he's apologizing or if he's just acknowledging, yeah, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people, but maybe it's ironic. You're not functioning like a ruler of the people. Who knows? There's something there um, that Luke records for us to think about. Okay, let's go to the next section. Now, when Paul... So this, this, this council deliberation is still going on here. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brother, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, 
It is respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you see this chaos of this day. I mean, let's talk about a day. And now, now the, the mob mentality and all the craziness that's happening, now it turns between, to, between his accusers. Okay? And, uh, and we had said this dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, and spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So there's a theological division between these two groups. And then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. If you say, if you say what I want him to say, there's nothing wrong with him. If he says something you don't want him to say, it's cancel culture. You know, but if you say the right thing, nothing wrong with them. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And then the dissension became violent, or when the dissension became violent. So this is hot. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So once again, the tribune, this pagan Roman commander, is actually, in the sovereignty of God, being used to spare Paul's life. To be sure, it doesn't show that all of a sudden Paul becomes the hero of the Roman Empire. He ends up getting his head cut off by them later on. But here at this moment, because God is preserving Paul alive. Um, the tribune steps in and brings him into the barracks. Barracks was the headquarters for the, the um, Jew, Jewish um, army. And then here's the thing I really want you to go home with. So he was brought in, and you can just imagine him going into the barracks, and it's from previous, you can kind of tell that it was up the stairs from where all this was happening. So it's just all close by, but he was upstairs in the barracks, quieter, sheltered, protected. And, uh, and then look what happens. It says, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Wow. The Lord was present for Paul. The one who gives the great commission and says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He was with Paul in this most dangerous, unsettled, unpredictable chaotic time. The Lord, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. And then he assured Paul, hey, I'm not done with you yet. The purpose isn't over yet. It's like Henry Martin, the famous 
early missionary to the Muslims going in all these dangerous places and, and he, he'd said, he said, I'm immortal as long as God has purpose for me. I'm immortal until God's purpose is done. And so when you realize you are in the hands of God, that God is standing with you, you can rest. You can take courage. So that was a nice night. Paul woke up in the morning wondering, is everything going to be better now? No. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you're going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And then we learn something about Paul's family that we know of no other place in the Bible. He had a sister who had a son. This is the only appearance of anyone from Paul's family in the whole Bible, in all of Paul's letters. And uh, verse 16, Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. We just wonder, how did he hear about this? How old was he? Where did he hear about this? We don't know. But he heard of the ambush. ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, how can he walk right into the barracks? Could be that maybe he was just bringing food into one of the prisoners. That's how they survived. So maybe that's how he got in. We just don't know. And uh, he went in, entered the barracks, and he told Paul. He said, hey, Uncle Paul, I just heard some bad news. There's a conspiracy against you. They want to kill you. And Paul said, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune. Here's our tribune again. And the commander. And said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. So the centurion brings the young man, brings Paul's nephew to the tribune. And the tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? It almost seems like a tender moment, I don't know. Um, what is it you have to tell me? And Paul's nephew said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire some, somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. And that's the end of today's passage. Talk about a cliffhanger. Okay? This is a cliffhanger. So you've got to come back next week. Pastor Kenny will be back, and he's going to take us the next step in this narrative. 
One of the things I so appreciate about the Bible, and about Acts in particular, is that it describes the exciting story of the church on the move. And as it does it, it doesn't omit the hard parts, the perplexing parts, the disappointing parts. What really struck me from last week's passage is that these thousands of Jewish believers were impacted by this false rumor about Paul. So there's tensions within and tensions without. As I reflected on this portion of the narrative of the book of Acts, I think of the variety of the opposition to the Apostle Paul. People within, people without. And, uh, and the amazing thing about this narrative is that, that the people that you expect to be most against him, namely the Roman Empire, because these Christians were going around saying, Jesus is Lord. No, Caesar is Lord. And yet, the Roman Empire at this point is assisting Paul, helping to keep him alive because of Paul's purpose. And uh, so the Roman Tribune was at first cruel, but he wanted to hear more. He stood in the way of Paul being unjustly scourged. He went to great lengths to protect Paul from the mobs and ensured that Paul could safely appear before the appropriate authority. The book of Acts tells it like it is. The church, yes, is on the move, but we must not be triumphalistic as though things will go smoothly. Remember what Paul said in Acts 14 when he was going about to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, how does he encourage them to continue in the faith? Saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. That was, an, that was his encouragement. There will be hardships in so many forms. Often the hardships will come in the form of misunderstandings, even from our own fellow believers. We may hear a rumor and form bad opinions of you and spread them to others. There will be others who are part of our social realm, neighbors, colleagues at work, fellow students who will be opposed to us, who just hate that we are associated with, with pro-life causes and those kinds of things, and just hate us and say all kinds of things that are not true. And, uh, but if our focus is on how people respond to us and we depend on their approval, these unpredictable responses will be crazy-making. That's why the most important part of the section that we're looking at today is found in 2311 where it said, The Lord stood by me. This is what I hope will go home with you today, ringing in your ears and dancing in your heart that the Lord stands by his people. He does. It's all because of the gospel. It's not because of our virtue. It's not because of anything that we're better than anything else. It's because of the gospel that we by faith alone, have put our trust in Christ alone, who paid the full penalty of our sins so that we can be reconciled to God, who is the judge of heaven and earth, 
and our Heavenly Father and this God can look at you and say, you're accepted. I will be with you to the end of the age. I will not abandon you. So don't interpret the hard things in your life as if I'm against you. I am for you. I will bring you through. The end is glorious beyond description. The sufferings along the way, you will find me to be faithful. Persevere. Let's pray. Father, help us to take courage no matter what issues that we're facing, whether it's persecution issues, whether it's health issues, finance issues, relationship issues. Lord, help us to trust you. You move in mysterious ways. Your wonders to perform. And we thank you, Lord, that you are at work in the church. The church is on the move. And you are going to bring us to the glorious consummation. So help us to be faithful. Help us to fulfill the ministry and the calling in our lives and the strength that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.